We are in part seven of our series through the book of Acts, line by line, and we've entitled this series, The Empowered Church, and I entitled today's message, Prayer 911. Now, if you're a note taker, I want you to grab something to write with, write on, because right at the beginning here, I want to share with you a phrase that I would like you to write down. You ready? Here we go. Write this down. Crisis is inevitable. Crisis is inevitable, but whether it builds us up or tears us down is our decision. Crisis is inevitable, but whether it builds us up or tears us down is our decision. And that's where you would say, well, pastor, hold on. I take issue with that. I didn't ask for any of this stuff that I'm going through. Hold up. I didn't say you got to pick the crisis. I didn't say you get to determine whether or not it's difficult. What I said was you get to choose whether you keep your eyes on Jesus or not. That's what I'm saying. You see, because there's a significant difference when our perspective is locked on Christ versus locked on our circumstance. The difference between Peter walking on the water and sinking was one of perspective and orientation. When he had his eyes on Jesus, he rose above the situation. When he took his eyes off Jesus, he began to fall into the situation. This, this is the same exact thing. Remember when uh, there was a storm that came upon the Sea of Galilee? Jesus is in the boat. He's sleeping, which, by the way, should show you there's a difference in orientation between those two, right? If Jesus is asleep during the storm, the storm's not that big of a deal to him. But they wake him up screaming at him, don't you care if we drown? Their orientation was, this is bigger than this. When he got up and he calms the wind and the waves, he rebukes them. And you're like, you can't rebuke scared people. That's mean. Like, they're just scared. Give them a break. No, no, no. He rebukes them. Why? He's like, guys, I'm right here. This is a totally different scenario. If I wasn't here, it makes sense to freak out on a storm. I'm here and I'm sleeping. We're good right? Like you got to have your eye, you're keeping your eyes on something else other than me and you're going to get spun. That's what's going to happen every single time. So I want to talk about how to handle crisis for a moment. And when I say that, I'm coming to you as a student. There have been times in my life when I've responded well to emergencies and there's some literal times that I have not. As a matter of fact, I was sharing last night one of my stories that still is one of my greatest embarrassments. And it was because in a crisis scenario, I was not able to help another person. I went into survivor mode, right? And it's, it's, it's horrifying because that's not my heart. I'm super embarrassed because I never want to do that again. So I, I just have to tell you that I'm not telling you, hey, be like me. I'm telling you, be like be like the apostles, be like Christ, be like Paul, because I'm still growing. I'm still learning. This is not a holier than thou thing, right? It's just straight up honest. I have to do the very same things I'm teaching you to do. I've had a lot of fear in my life, and sometimes I've overcome, and sometimes I have not. So I'm still in the process of growing. But I want to talk about this concept of orientation and why it matters so much. So a number of years ago, and I'm talking about quite a few years ago, I had a speaking engagement in what I refer to as the ugly part of Washington. You guys ever been to the ugly part of Washington? So the state of Washington on the coast is one of the most beautiful states in the entire United States. Then there's the other part. We literally passed a high school whose mascot was the Atomics, literally referring to atomic bomb testing. And I'm like, this is terrible. No one ever tests atomic bombs in pretty places. Like it already looked terrible. And after you tested the bomb, it looks the same. And so you're like, wow, this is an ugly part of Washington. If you're from Washington, I apologize in advance. While we were there, my buddy who uh, flew up there with me said, hey, let's go to the pretty part, which was Seattle. He's like, hey, I have a bucket, a bucket list thing that I would love for you uh, to go with me while we're up here. I've always had a dream of kayaking the San Juan Islands. 
right? Now, the San Juan Islands are right off of the coast there, and you kind of go up. It's, it's this amazing location. Like when you're kayaking, there are orcas that go boo underneath you and they come up the other. I mean, it's just wild. There's seals and, and it's just this incredible location. So says someone that likes nature. <laughs> In my mind, I'm thinking, why would I paddle my own boat when God gave us motors? I just think this is a stupid idea. I feel like it's an awful lot of work when we should have just turned on the motor and cruised through the area. That would have been awesome. But no, we have to do hard work. I was like, this is dumb, right? But anyway, it was his dream. I decided to help him out, right? So we get out there and uh, we had one of those tandem kayaks where you have like the, the rubber plastic part that comes up around you, right? Which means you're probably gonna get wet, that's really what it means, because they don't want it to soak in there. It's supposed to run off, but you're still going to get wet, which, by the way, the water's super cold, okay? So I was not looking forward to that part of it. So the instructor said, because you're out there, it's basically like a, uh, a number of hours you're going to be out there. And so he said, all right, we really only have one rule. When I tell you guys to turn your kayaks, I, I don't need you to argue with me. I just need you to do what I ask you to do right? Because we all have to orient them because when a wave comes, you actually have to aim towards the wave or it's going to toss you. <clears throat> so sure enough, we come out around and he knows that in order to get where we need to go, we go out into the open channel. In the open channel is where oil tankers go, okay? Now, I don't know if you've ever been near a tanker. They are massive, okay? Now, they're so massive that when they go through the channel, the wake that they give out is incredible. We couldn't even see the boat and the wave that was coming towards us, so it must have been miles away. The wave coming towards us was approximately 12 to 15 feet tall. And you're like, this is so far away from where it started, right? So it's a really massive wave. And he knew this is always how it goes. He goes, all right, so we're coming around. He goes, okay, you guys, here comes the wave. I want everyone orienting your kayak to face the side of the wave as it's coming towards you. Now, that's a little bit contrary to what we do. When we know we're going to hit something, we tend to turn to the side to try to take the impact, right? We don't tend to face things head on. So it was a little bit counterintuitive, but we all knew that he was right. So we orient our kayaks and here it comes. I'm like, ah, shoot, this is going to be brutal, right? And so what happens is the kayak is pointing. So the tip goes into the wave and it goes straight over the top of us because you ride up a little bit. The rest breaks over you. It all washes off and we go and we come out the other side, right? And so it was like, okay, that was, that was exactly how it was supposed to go except for it was freezing, right? <clears throat> and I was, I was realizing and thinking to myself, all right, here's the deal. Boats are designed for waves. They're designed to stay afloat. They're designed to pop back up. I mean, you watch some of these videos with these big, massive, you know, whether it's crabbing boats or whatever, and these huge waves are hitting. It's designed to pop back up. The whole point of it is to ride those waves, but orientation matters. If it hits you side, you're gonna get dumped. You're gonna get tore up. So how you angle it allows it to do what it was built to do. This is the case with human lives. Crisis is inevitable. Your orientation is gonna make all the difference in the world about how hard you're gonna get hit and in what way, right? You're gonna get spun, you're gonna get thrown, right? You have to keep oriented properly. Let me give you another example. Let's talk about snow this time. So I grew up uh, snow skiing. I understand some of you only use snowboards. We had things that one was on each feet, right? You could snow ski. And I did that a, a lot. And then I got older and realized, wow, that's exhausting and cold. So I stopped doing that. But when I was younger and stupider, I thought it was a great idea. So we would snow ski a lot, me and my buddies, and we had an opportunity. It's kind of an opportunity of a lifetime. We went up to Whistler, Canada. Have you ever heard of Whistler, Canada? It's one of the greatest uh, ski resorts in the entire world. It's above the tree line, so it's all powder and there's nothing to hit, which is pretty awesome when you're going really fast. So we went up, you know, we were on our flight. I remember the flight up there for one reason. I was 19, my two buddies were 18. 
So we're flying up there and the flight attendant, she says, can I get you guys anything to drink? And she asked my buddy and he said, do you have 7-Up or Sprite? Well, you know, sometimes in the plane there's that sound and you're like, I can't really hear what you just said. So she said, sure, and walked away. She brought him a seven and rye alcoholic drink. And he was like, <laughs> you know, you're like, uh, bro, what is wrong with you? And he was a little lit at the end of the thing. Anyway, <laughs> she heard it a little different. That's why I remember. So we end up going up there and and it was just all this fresh powder. It was like kind of the dream for skier. It's a location that has triple black diamond runs, right? Now, if you've ever seen like in, up here at Tahoe and stuff like that, you end up seeing like you got the little, little blue circle or whatever, right? And that's like the easy one, the bunny slopes. And then it's like the, the, the green or whatever it is, the square, and then it goes to a diamond. So they have triple black diamond, which just basically means you will die. And it was so bad. I remember we saw a triple black diamond at the top and then we got on our stomachs and we scooched up to the top and we stuck our camera over the top and it's just howling. The wind is howling and we just went and then we scooted back down. <laughs> We're like, there's no way I'm going over that thing. I will never come back. So, um, and I was realizing, you know, as, as we're going through all this stuff, we were the kind of guys that would, you know, we'd go off trail and we'd jump and do all this different stuff. And, and uh, to me, snow was super fun. But I also knew that in a moment, that which was fun can turn rather disastrous when you have an avalanche, right? So you watch some of these things. I don't know if you've ever seen those videos where the helicopter drops the skier off at the top and then they just go down and it's totally new terrain. Sometimes it triggers an avalanche and you'll watch all the snow give way and it starts following the skier. And if that person bails out, you're done. It's just going to bury you. And I was realizing this premise. What could be awesome or what could be devastating has everything to do with whether you're on top of it or it's on top of you. You understand what I'm talking about? We can go through scary times in life and it can either be the right of a life or it can be the end of a life. There's an orientation issue. As long as we are up on top of the snow, we're good. If the snow's up on top of us, we're doomed. Orientation, orientation, orientation. It's everything that I'm gonna be talking about today. And so, yes, crisis is inevitable. And there's a way to handle it and a way not to. There's a biblical way to handle it. And then there's a non-biblical way to handle it. And so what I'm going to try to burn into all of our minds is that the proper way to do it is to fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. Maybe we can allow this to soak into our soul. You ready? The right response to crisis is to gather and pray. To gather and pray. And this is where we're going to pick up our story in Scripture. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 23. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. If you're reading out of the Bibles here, it's going to be around page 912 to get you there a little bit faster. But if you're just joining us, let me give you a recap. So here's where we're at in the story. Two of Jesus' big dog leaders, guys named Peter and John, were heading to temple one day and... For whatever reason, the Holy Spirit told them we're going to heal this paralyzed guy. So they heal the guy. He goes ballistic. They go into temple, and he's just going crazy. Everyone knows this guy. He's been there forever. They're like, oh, my gosh, so-and-so was just healed. God just did a miracle, and it starts grabbing this massive crowd. Like thousands of people are gathering in the temple. Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is giving this crazy cool message. He's preaching, preaching. People are getting saved, and, and it's this amazing thing. All of a sudden, the Jewish leaders find out about it. They're like, oh, heck no. We already got rid of the leader of that movement. That's Jesus Christ. We got rid of him. Now, all of a sudden, his followers are popping up. We got to shut this thing down. So they grab the guys, they arrest them, put them in jail overnight, get them out the next morning, organize what's kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court called the Sanhedrin. They question them. They don't know what to do with them. So they threaten them with their lives and said, don't ever talk about Jesus again. 
And like Peter inspired by the Holy Spirit is like, hey, whether we need to follow God or follow you, man, that's something that you gotta figure out. We can't stop talking about it. We know what we saw, right? And yet the people that just threatened them not that long ago had just killed their best friend and leader. John, one of these guys, stood at the foot of the cross and watched his favorite person be hung there naked and die after being brutally beaten to the point of death. These guys, the, the threats are legit. The threats are real. This is as much as Peter like fired out by the Holy Spirit, this rattled them really bad. And that's where we pick up the story, all right? So turn with me to Acts chapter four, verse 23. Here we go. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. All right, let's pause. We're going to tear this apart. When they were released, do you always get released? No, you don't. How do we know that? John the Baptist didn't get released. John the Baptist went head to head with a leader and was talking about true things. He did what they did, ended up with his head on a platter and his ministry was over. You don't always get released. They had no idea if they're going to get released. You're going to find out in a little bit in the story, two guys go to prison, James and Peter. Peter gets out, James doesn't. You don't always get released. And this is the problem that many of us have. We read the Bible knowing the end of the story and we read it backwards. And you're like, whatever, you got released, bro. It's not a big deal. Okay, if somebody was jawing at you, they were talking to you, they were threatening you, that's just words. You're gonna get to go home. It's not that big of a deal. You missed it. Never read the Bible knowing the end and backing up. Why? Because then you're not in the story and not experiencing what they're experiencing. They don't know how it was gonna go. Because if you read it like that, you start thinking that stuff in the Bible is not like how you're going through it in real life. Because you keep saying this phrase, well, yeah, they got released. I don't know how it's going to go for me. They didn't know how it was going to go for them. They're human beings. They're walking through regular stuff. They're no different than you. You get scared, they get scared. Why is one of the most common commands in the Bible, do not be afraid? You don't tell someone to not be afraid unless they are afraid. Come on. There was so much fear. It's all over the place. They didn't know how it was gonna turn out. Here's another story. I was, uh, a number of years ago, I went to a charity event that was in San Francisco. And it was kind of one of those, we're trying to raise money things, right? And so it was at the top floor of the super old historic hotel in San Francisco. And I know it was fancy because as I walked into the lobby, Joan Rivers walked by. <laughs> now we're talking, it was a little while ago, okay? Uh, Joan Rivers is not still with us, but I was like, okay, well, why is Joan here? This is very strange. She wasn't here for that event, right? So we go all the way up to the top, and it was this super cool view of, of San Francisco, and, and that, you know, it was a fundraiser, so they needed to loosen wallets, so there was a serious amount of alcohol going on up in this place, right? So after a certain amount of time of meet and greet, it was time to go down to the main event. So that was down all the way down at the bottom floor. So everyone was supposed to get in the hotel, uh, excuse me, get in the uh, elevator, and we were going to head on down. Well, here's something interesting about people who drink a lot. They don't make wise decisions. I don't know if you knew this. Some of y'all might need to write this down, okay? <clears throat> so here's what they thought was a good idea. If you can fit more people in the elevator, you should. Now, I understand there's a posted sign that says you probably shouldn't, but we're not interested in reading right now. We're interested in filling it really full. All right, so they keep going, yeah, we can, come on in, bro. We can scoot back, come on in, come on. And they're all kind of lit and they're all yelling, right? Which normally I'm cool with yelling, but not in a very small space. And here's the problem. We're in an elevator of an old building. Now, apparently anyone that built anything before 1990 is a munchkin. I'm not sure why that is. Because I'm 6'3", and if I can touch the top of the 
elevator ceiling without stretching my arm out, it's pretty small. So my head's much closer to the ceiling than everybody else's. Now everyone's jammed in, everyone's yelling, and the doors close. Just locks out. And I'm like, oh, shoot. Right? Because now everyone's like, oh, this is hilarious. Right? And I'm like, yeah, no. Dude with panic disorder, 6'3", in the back of an elevator that's too small is not a good combo. Right? So my wife can tell I'm getting tense. Right? And, and here's the thing. If I make the long story short, go all the way to the end, we were in there for about 18 to 20 minutes. Okay? 18 to 20 minutes. Now, had I known that, I would have been cool. But I didn't know that. I don't know how long it's gonna last. I don't know if the cable's gonna snap. Isn't that what we all think? The minute something gets stuck, you're like, this could totally snap. We're gonna plummet to our death, right? Which is so not true, but that's what you keep telling yourself. Then you start making a really dumb things like, can air get through the doors? You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure air can get in here. It's, it's not like hermetically sealed or anything, right? So I didn't know. And that's why it was so freaky, because I didn't know how it was going to go. If I would have read it from the back, and I would have went, oh, you're in there for 18 minutes. And then we all, they, you know, they were going to end up pulling them apart, and they had the fire department, and we had to crawl out, and, and nobody got cut in half when, you know, right? <laughs> had I known that, I would have been way more relaxed. But I don't know. Whatever you're going through right now, the reason why you're freaking out is you're not sure how it ends. Is that correct? So the idea of us having faith and trust is while we still yet do not know how it's going to turn out. All right. So it says, what's the next thing? When they were released, they went where? To their friends. What a beautiful description of church. Because that's where they went. They went to church. They called church friends. Because for them, it was not a, oh, we got to go to church. What do you mean you got to go to church? You get to go to church. When it, this whole business, well, I don't know, are the Niners playing? Uh, I don't know, it's raining outside. I can't get wet, right? I mean, like, they didn't have all these excuses of why, well, you know, it's been a while, I haven't been there in like three weeks. Okay, there was none of that. They were like, that's where my friends hang out. So of course I'm gonna go there. I just had something really big go down. I wanna go hang out with my friends. If you ever uh, go to one of our meet and greets, we call it Introducing Bridgeway. It's the first full weekend of every month. And if you're ever in, in the, one of those, you're going to hear one of us as leaders say this phrase, church is better with friends. We say every time because it's kind of like our mantra, because here's what we realize when you're in a church and you know, tons of people, it's a whole different experience. Okay. So I can't go anywhere on this campus without seeing someone in every turn that I love and they care about me every single turn. That's my church experience. I have you guys. And a lot of it's just because we've been together for a really long time. Some of y'all are staff, some of you are just friends, some are people that I've had to pray through some very difficult times. Sometimes we actually were at odds. We didn't see things the same way and you hung in there and we had to battle through it and that's what creates bonds. But that's my church experience and I want everyone to feel that way. I want you to be able to walk into every room and go into a smile and go, oh my gosh, I love this place. That's church for me. And you can't have that just by cutting and running. You can't have it just by kind of being on the outskirts, being fringe. It takes an awful lot of work. I get it. But it matters. It drastically changes your church experience. So sure enough, they come in and they report the bad news. Remember, the, the church has no way of knowing. They know that their guys got arrested. They know they got held overnight. Now, all of a sudden, ding dong, they walk in the door. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you're okay. What happened? So they're giving the report back. And the report back was, hey guys, I think they're gonna kill us. And they were super rattled. I was sharing at the men's event a couple weeks ago. I only know a life of courage. And you're like, oh, that's cocky. No, hold on. Courage means you have the fear, then you still have to do it. 
I don't get to ever have to just do it. I always have to have the fear part, then I gotta do it, which makes it kind of miserable, right? And I'm like, so stuff that you guys take for granted, I don't get to take for granted. Uh, Next week, I gotta get on a plane and go somewhere and it's actually somewhere fun. But planes are hard for me because I have panic disorder. So y'all would be like, oh, sweet, we get to do it. It's a super short flight. It's an easy flight. I have to gear up for it. That's a drag, right? So I only know a life of courage. Feel the fear, press through it, get it done. Okay, these guys were rattled. People in the Bible got rattled. But check this out. We never realize the power of a support system until crisis. Let that soak in, right? Do not buy the lie of this world that says make enough money to hide behind a gated community. As long as you got the money, as long as you can do all that, you can isolate, you can isolate. But here's the truth. Your isolation doesn't matter when your spouse goes through cancer. Then you wish you had a small group. Then you wish you had people around you. But you don't realize it till then. You don't want to be a part of a small group, dude. I don't want to go meet people I don't even know. I don't want to hang out with those awkward church people. And then it's going to be dumb. I don't know what to talk about. And then they're going to start something odd. You know, they're like, let's hold hands. I don't want to hold your hand, right? Like, what is wrong with you, right? And so we don't want to put in any of that effort. I got enough people that I know. All right, hold up. Do you have people that pray for you? Because I wouldn't be here if I didn't have people praying for me. Well, I don't know, most of my friends aren't believers. Well, then you got a problem because somebody's got to pray for you. Somebody's got to back you up. You see, I've been in ministry long enough to know the stories, the stories of, oh my gosh, we went through cancer and my small group poured around me. They were bringing us meals. They were getting our back. They were always checking on us. They were always calling us. They would show up at the house unexpected. They would take our kids when we needed a break. I got that story a ton from everybody. Then I get the stories, I had cancer, nobody called me in church, nobody cared. It's because nobody knows you. Well, you think that's just gonna happen on accident? No, that's intentional, we build into it. You guys, my small group is my senior leadership team. It's the leaders that I serve with, I'm with them all the time. I pour into their lives wherever I can. I pour into my staff wherever I can. I know they're the ones that are gonna back me up too. I understand the power of community, but it's intentional. We gotta be able to lean in and have that because we're not gonna realize how big of a deal. You know how sexy and romantic it is for a young couple to go, dude, we're gonna get married and we're gonna go live in Italy. Then all of a sudden they have a kid and they have no childcare. And they're like, oh shoot, right? We haven't been on a date ever, right? because you got the little baby. So here's the point. You don't realize the need of a support system till you need it. Yep. It says, and then they lifted their voices together and they prayed. You guys, that's called group prayer. That's called corporate prayer. Do you understand that private prayer and corporate prayer are slightly different things, okay? They have a lot of overlap. They're all communicating with God, talking with God, having building relationships, stuff like that. But they actually have very different purposes. Private prayer, your personal talk with God, driving in the car, being at home by yourself, that is a time of emotional bonding with God. That is intimacy time, that's depth time, that is talking to God about stuff you would never talk to anybody else about. That's like pouring your heart out. That's like hearing words from him. That's what that's for. That's actually about a heart issue between you and him. Corporate prayer, group prayer is totally different. It's actually where you get stuff done. It's actually power. It's where you pray breakthrough. It's where you pray revival. It's where you start praying healing. It's where, that's group prayer. And it's actually handled very different because when you're doing group prayer, you actually have to get everybody on the same page. And so it's a little bit of talking to God, a little bit of talking to each other. It's a little bit of trying to like rustle in cats, right? In order to get something done. So we have a We have a prayer meeting every Monday night here that's led by Dale and Marilyn Weeby. Faithful couple, they're awesome, right? Every every Monday, 6 p.m. And so that little one's starting to grow, right? Because people are starting to get the vibe. I'm gonna suggest to you that I believe most of you, not all of you, most of you, have a very sweet, intimate, personal prayer life. I think you talk to God quite a bit. 
Where we are weak as a church is group prayer, doing it as teams. That's actually where we're not great. I don't believe we're gonna see a move of God the way that we desire it until we learn to pray in groups. I think that's gonna change the game. And I'm watching God slowly begin to get people together because that's when breakthrough starts happening. Let's pick up the story again. Verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, now let's pause real quick. Whenever you read ancient saints' prayers, you should always look to see if there's anything you can learn from them, maybe a pattern, maybe an insight, maybe a, a tool that you can learn because we all learn by role modeling. So you're gonna read this with me and I'm gonna tell you right now, it's gonna come out convoluted, a little bit boring, and you would have just blown it off, okay? But there's a couple insights that will help unlock it for you. So we're gonna read it, but just know this, he's going to quote the Old Testament. Right when he's praying and it starts getting weird, he's actually quoting something and pulling it from Psalm 2. That's why it sounds a little bit unusual. All right, here we go. This is how he prays. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, quote, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, end quote. For truly in this city that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Romans or the Gentiles and the Jewish leaders or the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Okay, once again, sounds convoluted. What do we pull from it? It's very basic stuff. Number one, how did they start? Sovereign Lord. Why is that important? How you start your prayers are going to change the rest of the prayers. How do we always need to start? Reorient to who you're talking to. How do we know that's important? Because the disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he taught them the Lord's Prayer. You guys, that's one of the most famous prayers of all time. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You guys know this, yes? All right. How did he tell them to pray? Guys, before you get into your stuff, I want you to reorient on who you're talking to. Dial back into the character of God. If you begin our father in heaven, you are now saying, if he's your father, you're a child of God. That changed the game. If you're saying sovereign creator, you're talking to the one who created ex nihilo, created from nothing. No matter what you're going to bring to him, it's not difficult. Your problems are not too big for your God, but you gotta get your head back in the game. Before you go into prayer, reorient, reorient, reorient. Who is God and who am I in light of who he is? That should shape everything else you're about to talk about. It will bring in some thanksgiving. It'll bring in some praise that you wouldn't normally do. But you start with the nature of God. Then it's interesting because then the leader of this prayer, which is probably Peter, he then starts quoting scripture to God. That sounds so dumb. What are you doing? Hey, God, you know it says in the Bible. He's like, yeah, I'm pretty clear. <laughs> I wrote it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good with that one. Why are you telling me this? Okay, it's so funny how much stuff we always think we're telling God. You're not telling God anything he doesn't know. You will never go into prayer and he'll be like, really? <laughs> the only reason you know it is he told it to you. That's why you know it, right? So you go, well, why are they quoting scripture? Because they're in corporate group prayer. Why does that matter? It's different than private prayer. Corporate group prayer, let's get all on the same page. Hey guys, let's reflect for a moment and speak back what is true about God. What did he say last time? What is true in his word? Everybody get your eyes focused forward. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's talk about it. You remember the time in the Old Testament when God said there were bad guys, but I always win. Okay, everyone get your head that into the game, into the game, let's go, reorient. So he's quoting out scripture for everyone else to settle in. 
That's how you do corporate prayer. It's a little bit of talking to each other. It's a little bit of talking to him. Dials everybody in. Then he ends up saying an interesting phrase that I think is a bit powerful theologically. He said, God spoke via the Holy Spirit through King David. Okay, for a moment, let's, let, me, let me just make a, a, an analogy here or an illustration. Okay, so I've taught you many times on what it means that we have a, a triune God, right? That we know that God reveals himself in at least three persons. So let me explain what I mean. So let's say way back here is Yahweh. He is all that God is. He is full deity. Nobody can grasp that. Nobody can handle that. Nobody could comprehend that. Yahweh is what he is. That's what he told Moses. You guys remember? What do I call you? Call me I am what I am. It's like, all right, that was not very helpful. Okay, cool. He's like, you wouldn't get it anyway. So he's way back here. In order to communicate to mankind, he's going to go through one of three channels. We know those channels because those three are emanating out of his nature. Who are they? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They're all fully him. He's all fully them. But those are the modes in which he's communicating to us, those three persons. So the minute you always say, where's the source? The source is always Yahweh. What's the mode? It goes through Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That is how we interact with God. But now you need it to go from Father, Son, Holy Spirit to boots on the ground. That's your vehicle. Who's the vehicle? In this situation, it was King David. Yahweh wanted to say something, said it through the Holy Spirit, got to King David, and it was his lips or his pen that wrote it down. That's how prophecy works. How does it work for us? Yahweh wants to heal somebody. He does it via the Holy Spirit, but who's gonna lay their hands on somebody? You are. That's the vehicle. You're not the source. You're not even the mode, but you're the practical vehicle. That's how we do supernatural ministry here. So a couple other things. What were they really talking about? God, you had bad guys. You've always had bad guys. He's like, yes, I know. They're like, Jesus, you had bad guys. He's like, yes, I know. They're like, well, we have a bad guy problem. We need your help on it but we know that you are in charge. In your prayers, keep reorienting who's in charge. Because if God's in charge, it means you will never walk into a crisis that God hasn't already been working on. This is what's so fascinating to me. We're like, oh my gosh, I have a cancer diagnosis. You were caught off guard because you just found out. How long has that cancer been in your body? Probably long before you ever figured it out. The doctors only figured it out because you went in. Who knew it first? God. God's the only reason why the doctors figured it out. God's the only reason why you figured it out. So the fact that you're dealing with it now means you're all late. He's already been dealing with it a long time ago. You will never walk into a crisis that God hasn't already been working on. You don't have to tell him there's a crisis. He said, come on, kiddo. I got a whole bunch of stuff already in the play. Let's go, okay? Pick it up in verse 29. What did they need? And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Ah, what did you see? And now, Lord, what does Lord mean? It means master. You should have that all over your prayers. I'm not saying the actual word. I'm saying the concept. You need to always reorient all the way through. And Lord, it means he's in charge. It's not your job. It's not your kingdom. It's not your agenda. It's not your priorities. Anytime you're praying, it goes back to him, goes back to him, goes back to him. Reorient, reorient, reorient. Lord, this is something I need. But if you're talking to the master, you're saying, if you think it's a good idea. Does that make sense? That's automatically implied. They said, we'll take notice of what the bad guys are doing. 
You know, if you read that and you don't understand it, you actually think that the Bible teaches that you're informing God. Hey, God, pay attention to this, like as if he was busy gaming or something. In the Bible, the ancient way of talking is that you say, God, take notice of this means you already know it, please take action. When you take notice of it, it means for the purpose of doing something about it. Does that make sense? So all they're doing is saying, would you now do something about it? All right, cool. What do they want? They ask for a couple things. First one out of the gate, boldness. Why do they ask for boldness? Because here's what you could have asked for. God, can you just incinerate the bad guys? I mean, like, isn't that, you know, there's some of us are all messed up in our heads. That's what we would have done, right? We're like spontaneous combustion, right? Explode. Okay. Why didn't they pray for that? Why did they pray for boldness? Because the bad guys aren't the real problem. Jesus has already given them their assignment. What's their assignment? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Their assignment's not going away. They can either do that terrified or do that boldly. Their job doesn't change. So they're like, Lord, I already know what I have to do. Can you just re-rack me? Fill me with your power and your courage because God, I am so shaken right now. I don't wanna keep ministering. I'm a little freaked out, right? That's what they're praying for. Then they ask for supernatural ministry. Right? They're following in Jesus' footsteps. They needed to do some healings. needed to do signs and wonders. Which, by the way, what do signs and wonders mean? We hear that phrase a lot. What does it mean? It's two categories of miracles. Regular miracles are called wonders. And it's a wonder because it's weird. A sign is a miracle that points to something bigger. Simply put, if you saw a sign that pointed and said, Austin, Texas, this way, you would then want to reorient that way. You don't analyze the sign. Wow, what an amazing sign. He's like, uh, the sign is actually pointing to the amazing thing. It's not the sign. Okay, so let's talk about this. When Jesus turned water to wine, was it because wine's a big deal? No, nobody cares about the wine. What was the sign? The Messiah went public. It was his first outward inauguration of his ministry. It was supposed to point you to something else. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, what kind of wine was it? Oh, and we're analyzing this. He's like, oh my gosh. It was pointing to something else. It's not that thingy, it's the other thingy, <laughs> right? So sometimes the miracle itself is really about something else, not just the miracle. Yeah, we'll get into that in a moment. But then they say something very, very powerful. It's a theological statement. You stretch out your hand to heal. What does that mean? They're talking about source. But notice, then they talk about mode. You're gonna do it through who? The name of your son, Jesus. You got three choices, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This one happens to be going through the Son of God. But then who's ultimately gonna lay their hands on someone? The disciples. They're the vehicle. It's you. Okay, cool. So they laid this out. Quick side note, got a question for you. Are you content living a life as a Christian that does not demand miracles? Because here's what's interesting. They were not. They lived on a front lines and they lived in a way that if God didn't show up, it was really going to be awkward. They were healing people and casting out demons, and they were doing ministry that changed the world. Yet most of us, we could go for the next 20 years without a miracle, and it wouldn't change a thing. Are we okay with that? Or should we be a little bit uncomfortable and have a little holy discontent to go, I want to do stuff that matters? Well, if you're going to do stuff that matters, you can't do it on your own. you got to have God power or it ain't going to fly, Right? That's how they operated. Okay, and then check this out. Here's how the story closes out. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
Okay, so right off the bat, we got a couple things. We got a crazy miracle manifestation of God, and we find out God answered their prayers. They needed boldness because they were scared. Now they're locked and loaded. They're like, yeah, let's go get them, right? They're all fired up by the Holy Spirit, and they're ready to go do ministry again. So we're like, yay, God answered their prayer. Okay, now let's analyze it a little bit. Couple things. Number one, it says, and when they had finished praying, the place was shaken. Is that correct? Okay. It's going to sound like I am splitting hairs here. And yes, I am a Bible nerd. But you need to pay attention to this because here's what's interesting. If I was to ask you guys how anything's going to happen in the church, let's say let's talk about healing for a moment. Hey, I'm going to pray for you about your leg, right? You're going to assume, I would say any of you that have church background, 95% of you will assume that it's supposed to be healed while I'm praying about it. Is that correct? Because that's how we normally think about it. While I'm praying, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray healing over this leg. It's like, and we're like, whoa, this is so sweet. Like, I'm praying about it. This is awesome. And yet the Bible says, sometimes, and the apostles prayed, and after they prayed, they laid hands on and healed. I'm sorry, do you know how to do that? You're not going to do it through prayer. You're just going to lay your hands on and heal. Everyone's like, uh, I don't know how to do that. Like you're supposed to do it while, it's, while you're praying, but that's not what the Bible says. No, that's what you were taught. That's not what the Bible says. In the same way, what's interesting is, I would venture to say we all assume that if God was gonna do something radical, he'd do it while we were praying, not when we're done. But that's exactly what the Bible just said. And when they had finished, it's almost like he was waiting. He's like, are you still talking? All right, let's go. Pray, 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 and all right, you guys done? Good, wham, and then he just hit it. Shook the whole place, but it was after they were done praying. You go, well, I don't understand, what's your point? My point is this, stop putting God in a box and telling him what he can and can't do. When you start thinking through formula, you're thinking through magic thinking, stop it. You are not manipulating a force, you are talking to a person, and he's gonna keep flipping it on you and flipping it on you and flipping it on you and going, stop it, we do this together. You don't get to tell me how I heal and how I don't. I will do it the way I want to do it, right? Now, this is super, super powerful. Here's another one. It says, and the place in which they were in was shaken. Okay, so here's another question for you. Would this have shown up on the Richter scale? You guys know what a Richter scale is, right? That's the earthquake measuring device. Here's the, here's the side question. Would their neighbors have noticed? Did pictures fall off the wall? Right? Like, are there, were there cracks in the, the, the walls? Right? Because here's what I'm asking. Was this an internal community experience where God shook their world? Or did he literally shake the ground and it altered the foundation? You're like, who cares? I care. Because here's why. Some of us believe that if it's a legitimate miracle, everyone has to experience the exact same thing. I disagree. As a matter of fact, I believe a whole bunch of us experience very, very different things, and I think that's on purpose, and I think it's the way God deals with his kids. I think that sometimes you're going to come out of a worship service and go, oh my gosh, didn't you guys feel the Holy Spirit? And all your friends are going to say, no. <laughs> you're going to be like, well, maybe I'm an idiot. Maybe I'm the weird psycho because I felt something. That was a treat from God for you. He was telling you out of that whole room, he saw you. He gave you a special treat. It wasn't for everyone. And the other thing is, we have to realize you are never going to move forward in supernatural ministry until you understand this truth. There are some legitimate supernatural manifestations that are real that you will never experience. But that doesn't make them not real. Because for many of us, we have this attitude, if it was legit, I would be able to have it too. It's not for you. You don't get to have that once, but just because you didn't experience it doesn't mean that you got to shut me down and tell me that mine was not legit. There's a bunch of different ways that God moves. All I'm telling you is sometimes he grabs a community and he shakes their world, but it doesn't mean the neighbors feel it. Sometimes he does shake the place and it is a literal moving of the rock. Sometimes it's just a few people that get lit up and excited and fired up. Sometimes it's just one. And that's okay. Doesn't mean he doesn't love the other ones. This is a big challenge in supernatural ministry. 
We think that once someone has an experience, we all get jealous. How come he didn't do it for me? We had this famous phrase in our household as we were growing up because I had two girls. Actually, still have two girls. <laughs> and, and we had this phrase, a compliment for one is not an insult to the other. And we had to say it over and over. Because we would say, Jill, oh my gosh, you did so good on that. And Andy's like, what about me? <laughs> Hold on, a compliment for one is not an insult to the other. Right now we're focusing on Jill. I'll compliment you on something else. You guys, same thing. Just because one person has one gift, just because one person has one experience, just because one person has one manifestation does not mean that he doesn't love you that much too. It just means he's doing different stuff to keep things individual and to keep things personal. Amen? You see, as we close out, here's the point. How do we respond to crisis? Gather and pray, gather and pray, gather and pray. Community and prayer can get you through almost anything. The Satan would like to scare you and make you want to isolate and hide in the cave. I'm telling you right now, you need other people around you to get you out of your head, pray for you when you're weak, and get your back. When you get rattled, gather and pray. Gather and pray. Prayer is not, well, I guess all we have is prayer. Nope, we lead with it. Guess what I have? Prayer. Let's go, amen? Let's close in prayer and get out of here. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you so much for your kindness, the way that you would reveal so much in your word. And, and Lord, you're just even right now beginning to change our perspective and our orientation. That Lord, we're beginning to remember how mighty you are and how wonderful you are and how attentive you are and how personal you are. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would pour out whatever we need Lord, if we're just going about doing nothing important, I guess we don't need an extra anointing for today. But if we're going to go out and walk on the front lines, if we're going to go out and do something mighty for you, Lord God, we need that outpouring of your Holy Spirit. So God, I just pray that in our midst, we might be anointed afresh, that we would be designed and built and empowered to do what you called us to do. We praise you, Lord. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.